Why and when did you start Molecular Podcasting and your YouTube channel? I've always been interested in the performative aspects of teaching and mentoring and scientific communication. When I was a kid, I used to have TV and radio shows that I would do at home with a handheld you know, VHS video camera. And when I started teaching, uh, I started my um, career at UCSD in 2012, um, I realized that I was doing the same lectures over and over again and um, tracking down that factor of two in that derivation year after year. And it, it was kind of boring and not really the best use of my time, honestly. So in 2017, I recorded uh, all of my course lectures. This ended up being somewhere around 75 lectures um, that I could use in future years um, as a video textbook for the course. And then I could use the actual time in class as a variety hour, basically um, using the time for design challenges, for team-based problems, for discussion, for discussions with people from industry and academia. Um, and at around the same time, I started running a graduate and postdoc professional seminar series through something called the IDEA Center um, in my engineering school, uh, where IDEA stands for Inclusion, Diversity, Excellence, and Achievement. And uh, we had about uh, 80 to 100 uh, attendees at each one of these uh, lectures. And if there was a topic on, say, writing or or unconventional careers or time management, and I couldn't find somebody to give that lecture, I ended up giving it myself. And I also recorded all of these uh, lectures as well. And they became the content for the podcast um, three years before I actually started the podcast. So um, they were all on YouTube starting in 2017, um, and then I produced more in 2018, 2019. Um, so I had this uh, critical mass of material that was already uh, that was already produced. And those were actually the first uh, few episodes of the podcast. And in fact, if there are a few weeks that go by where I'm not able to generate a new content, then I'll borrow from that pool of YouTube content and just take the audio and publish that as a, as a podcast and do very minimal editing. Most of the time, the video component isn't even necessary. So you're right that it started uh, officially in the middle of the pandemic, but it had been building a long, a long time. The reason for doing it in the middle of the pandemic was that there were three months where the lab was entirely shut down because of COVID concerns. Uh, I, ironically, the in, the infectivity rate is much higher now than it was then, and we're open now, and we were closed then. But it was, you know, the the pervasive sort of fear. Um, so I had a lot of time because I wasn't mentoring my students on their projects. Um, I may have been helping them write review articles and stuff, but we weren't generating any original research, and I wanted to have an impact in another way. Who do you imagine your target audience to be? I imagine that, you know, that the median 
uh, age of the listener is probably a 25 year old graduate student in materials chemistry. So that's what I what I tailor my uh, uh, my content. Uh, that's the person to whom I tailor my content, but it's not really that tailored. Um, I would say that that I'm the person that I'm tailoring it to. Um, I have kind of eclectic interests, uh, and there's something on there that will appeal to anybody in academic science or perhaps even academia in general. How do you find time to record new episodes? It is certainly a challenge to balance the podcasting work with my scientific work. There will be weeks at a time where I don't publish anything new. Um, I'm not happy about that, but it's just kind of, it's the way things are. I mean, I have grant deadlines and paper deadlines, and I'm teaching six times six, uh, six sections of week this uh this academic quarter. So this is a, a time of year when my podcast uh, productivity is is pretty low. Um, as you mentioned, I you know, I, this isn't really part of my my job, I don't get paid for it. Um, so it, it you know, it, it has to, uh, it, it has to appeal to me and fit into my academic uh, schedule. Um, and, but at the same time, it's more rewarding personally than uh than much of what my official job entails um the feedback i get from podcast episodes and youtube content is uh almost uniformly positive whereas you know you get a paper uh you know a rejection from a paper or a grant and it's all criticism and you know makes you feel horrible <laughs> so um, there's, there's a, there are positive aspects. What importance do you place on the number of subscribers? Yeah, that's, that's, it's definitely a, a balancing, a counterbalancing force in my life, but it's not, you know, it's not the reason that I do it. I think that I would still produce stuff, even if I only had 10 subscribers as opposed to 10,000. Um, it's, uh, I, I enjoy the personal connection with the audience. You know, it's, it's not necessarily that I need the praise. I just enjoy the, the back and forth. What is your total audience between the podcast and YouTube? Mm -hmm. So on YouTube, I'm approaching 8,500 subscribers. Uh, the podcast base is a little bit more difficult to, uh, to pin down. There are episodes that I've had, which have had, uh, more than a thousand uh, downloads, um, and there are some that are, you know, in the low hundreds, maybe you know, one hundred to two hundred. Um, the total number of unique listeners, you know, to the podcast uh, is probably somewhere in the uh, in the one to two thousand range. Uh, so if I add that to YouTube, it, I come up with about 10,000 subscribers or 10,000 people that I can reach if I put something out. What is the relationship between your podcast and YouTube channel? So the podcast is a distillation of the best non-coursework part of my YouTube channel. I don't produce anything for the podcast that's not also on YouTube. Um, and 
that's just a question of getting a video recording the video feed as well. Um, the type of audience engagement that I get, or let me go back a, a moment. There is stuff on YouTube that's not on the podcast, and that tends to be more research-based. Um, I don't want the podcast to be about my research. Um, that's, and I don't really want it to be about other people's research. I want it to be about lifting the veil on academic science and, uh, and, and contributing to a community of, of inclusion, getting uh, uh, diverse voices to be heard. Um, and uh, we talk a lot about, uh, about uh, mental health and, um, and sort of um, making, making academic, humanizing academic science, let me, let's say. YouTube has all of that. It has playlists. So it has the playlist that mirrors the podcast. It has a uh, playlist on each one of the courses that I teach. Um, so it has four, you know, separate tracks of course material on it. So polymer chemistry, intro to nanotechnology, intermolecular and surface forces. And then there's a professional seminar that I teach uh, as well. And then there are also research talks. So when I give a recorded research lecture, say it's a, a version of a talk that I would have given at a department seminar, I'll, I'll put that up. That will be like the updated version of my research talk. And maybe somebody that's reviewing a paper or a grant proposal of mine can just kind of go there and see what my lab is all about. Um, so there is more on the YouTube channel than the podcast. So YouTube has, a, I think it has 158 videos. Podcast is about, right now it has maybe 38 episodes or something like that. Um, so, but the podcast is kind of like the the creme de la creme of my non non academic content. That's what's mirrored on uh, on on YouTube, or that's what's taken from YouTube and put on the podcast. What podcast publishing service do you use? I use a service called Anchor, uh, which publishes uh, automatically to the major podcast platforms. So it's on Apple, Spotify, uh, Google, and right there that probably covers 90% of, of listeners, but there are others as well that uh, I don't I don't use myself, so I don't I don't really know what they are, but Anchor does all of that for me. Has your research direction been affected by the podcast? That's a very interesting question. Um, it's probably a little bit too early to say. Uh, there is a collaboration that I have now, a, a very potentially interesting collaboration that I had by listening to a colleague's, a guest on a colleague's podcast. And this particular guest is a uh, was a professor at my uh, at, at UC San Diego, and I reached out to him, and we wrote a grant proposal together. So that was that was pretty cool. So my involvement in the podcast ecosystem is starting to uh, influence my research direction, but I would say it, it hasn't yet done so. In, a way that's led to to papers. In what other ways has your career been affected by this type of outreach activity? I my my career has definitely uh, taken a turn um, for the better um, as a result of this type of um, of scientific communication, public outreach. Um, this is something that I uh, that is that I hold 
in in equal value to my uh, my research. Um, it's uh, it's just it's incredibly gratifying to have this um, to have built this community around topics that everybody in academia knows are important, but that nobody, particular not particularly not somebody who has achieved some amount of of um, uh, let's say traditional success along academic, uh, the academic, you know, axes of success or whatever that is, uh, grants and publications, you know, are willing to, to talk about. So I think that, uh, I think that, that this, this part of my career is as, uh, is as gratifying as the research part. I'm interested in, in, academic or scholarly aspects of lab culture and inclusion and, and inclusive teaching. And I think all of that is, is tied into my interest in, uh, in podcasting. Can you tell us a little bit more about the scientific project that arose because of your involvement in the podcast community? Sure. Um, <laughs> this is not published uh yet and we don't we don't have the grant yet so I'll, maybe i'll speak about it in fairly uh fairly broad terms there is a uh, i have a, a a colleague uh brian keating who runs the into the impossible podcast uh, brian is a cosmologist and uh, experimental um, uh, physicist and he has he he had this podcast through the UCSD Center for the Imagination, which he is the uh, uh, director or, or co-director of, and they, he, they, it was fairly active, not, you know, not too active, but then once COVID happened, he started producing like two episodes a week, sometimes three or four episodes a week. And his YouTube channel went from, I don't know, a thousand subscribers to like 15,000 subscribers in the period of a very, uh, of a few months. And he's, he has people who are scientists on his podcast and, and even non-scientists, uh, but people who are not, not professional podcast guests, like you can go on you know, uh, Ezra Klein and Freakonomics Radio and Fresh Air, and you'll hear the same damn person go from podcast to podcast, and they say the exact same thing every single time. Uh, but Brian has these people who have never been on a podcast, and uh, and he gets them to talk about their work in a very beautiful way. And there was one particular episode, which actually Brian's uh, producer host hosted. So Brian, I think, had the day off that day or something. And his guest was uh, Fadal Zaydan, who is a, um, uh, a, um, a neurobiologist who works in our, uh, our med school's anesthesiology department. And he's working on a project on meditation-assisted analgesia, so meditation-assisted pain reduction. And this is uh, somebody who spent a long time on, uh, on retreats studying with, uh, with meditation masters, and, uh, and this became his, uh, his, his passion and his, uh, his life's work. Um, so in parallel, my, uh, my interest in, uh, in at the intersection of material science and behavioral and cognitive science um, uh, was uh, made me, me primed for this particular interview that I heard on, on 
Brian Keating's podcast. And so I reached out to uh, to Fottle to develop a collaboration in a uh, a haptic a a, a haptic uh, device that could serve as a meditation facilitator in order to scale up this use of meditation as a means of pain reduction. So that's a project that we've uh, that we've recently started, and due to COVID, we haven't actually done any uh, any any human subject experiments yet, but we just submitted a grant proposal. Why aren't more scientists engaging with the public on podcasts and YouTube? Most scientists that I've talked to do not want to see themselves on screen or to hear their voice too too much. I think there might be some kind of uh, some kind of pathology um, that scientists who who are who are maybe too interested in this stuff um, possibly possess, um, and I'm happy to admit to being one of those people. Uh, but even some fairly prominent people that I've met, um, they just say, you know, I've I've thought about recording my lectures. I really don't want to see that, you know, ever again. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't want to put myself in that position. So I've never encouraged anybody to do it. Um, I think there are many stages to where, uh, you know, it, it, it does take some courage uh, to, to do it. Um, but I think that it's a, it was a, a slippery slope for me in a good way. Um, you know, it took some courage to decide to record my lectures for the first time and then put them up for free without asking my university for permission to do that. Um, I never got in trouble. It's only, I think it's only had good outcomes. And then starting the podcast, um, asking particular guests if they would join me. Um, so I had a the super successful professor of economics at George Mason University, uh, Tyler Cowan, as a guest, and his was by by far my most uh, popular episode because he has ten books. Now he's not a chemist or a material scientist, but he uh, but he has interesting things to say about you know innovation and uh, and things that that my audience I think is interested in. So, you know, even doing things like that took a lot of a lot of courage. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that I'm like special. Like I like I said, I think it might even be like uh, pathological or I don't know, some kind of narcissism or something. But I, I actually enjoy the uh, the 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 thrill of putting something new up and particularly something that's uh, that's, you know, close to my heart. Um, there was a. Uh, uh, an American songwriter uh, who died by suicide a few uh, years ago, Chris Cornell, who was the the singer in Soundgarden and a couple of other bands after that. And he said that when you uh, when you write down a, a lyric and you think it's too personal um, and you cross it off and then uh, and then you move you move on, um, you have to go back and 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 uncross out that that uh, that lyric because the stuff that gives you that uh, that uh, that feeling of having given too much of yourself is actually the stuff that that makes the best the best art or the best uh, the best uh, material. What advice would you give scientists who would like to start a podcast? 
as a podcast host or a YouTuber, you're selling yourself as a product. <laughs> and another important consideration is to find their niche. In the field of uh, coordination chemistry, it, you know, heteronuclear diatomic inorganic species, there might be five people uh, who would be interested in that. And maybe that's in the in the podcast world, or maybe maybe even if it's two hundred, you know, whatever whatever number of people cites a uh, in a, a Jack's article in that uh, you know in that that's like that space, a very popular perspective or review article in that space, that might be the maximum audience, and maybe you can capture five percent of that audience. Um, if if you want to have a broad reach, then uh, then there there better be some um, then one might have to cast a wide net and talk about uh, things related to science that that touch on on other fields, but maybe that's not the point. Maybe we want to have like a podcast as graduate seminar, and um, uh, and maybe maybe ten listeners a week is is fine. Also, uh, number three is sort of a technical issue. I would definitely do a YouTube version of the podcast because the listenership is 10 times higher on YouTube than it is on the podcast. And the the quality of engagement is lower on YouTube. So you can see that the, um, that the audience retention drops much faster on YouTube than it does on the podcast. Uh, but in terms of eyes and ears, YouTube is definitely the way to go. Uh, unfortunately, YouTube distracts everybody with its sidebar of recommended videos, so not everybody will make it to the end. Uh, you might have 30% audience retention at the end of an hour-long episode on YouTube, whereas you'll have 70% at the end on the podcast. There are some people who sort of made their name as podcasters and don't have a YouTube channel, but those people are you know, they're not starting out at the same level as most academic scientists are.